Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson, Podcast Mike here, introducing this week's episode. Yes, I'm back. Will was back for one week. Now I'm back, but hopefully Will will be back for the intros as of next week. This week's guest, though, so exciting for me, it's Andy Griffiths. Andy Griffiths is an author, uh, an Australian children's author who has written so many hilarious books for, uh, you know, for young children. His current series, uh, which started with the 13-story treehouse, it's now up to its latest book, the 143-story treehouse, which is available now. But um, for me growing up, I loved the comedy in Andy's Just series, which included books like Just Tricking, Just Annoying, Just Stupid, Just Crazy. Um, These were incredibly fun books for kids my age who grew up in the 90s, which Will and Andy both allude to at the beginning of this chat. Uh, I thought this was a lot of fun, and I, I, I think there's a lot of good nuggets in here about how to get children more interested in reading, which is something that Andy's work definitely did for me growing up. I'd also love to say that if you want to support Willosophy, you can head to patreon.com slash Willosophy and for as little as a dollar a month, you can get these episodes one day early and without ads. That's the best part. No ads on the Patreon feed. So definitely jump onto the Patreon as little as a dollar a month. Also head to our Instagram, instagram.com slash Willosophy pod. And uh, you can see all of the fantastic artwork there. And on Twitter at Willosophy pod, you can let us know what you thought about all of these episodes. We love seeing all the feedback that we get there, so we would really appreciate it if you give us a follow and spread the word about the podcast over on Twitter. Okay, that is about all from me. I will now pass it over to Will Anderson and Andy Griffiths for this episode of Willosophy. Enjoy. And welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the show begins. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Uh, I'm Andy Griffiths, uh, probably best known for writing uh, silly children's books for the last 25 years with my friend Terry Denton. So Andy, lovely to have you on the show for a start. I will say this, Podcast Mike, who is the producer of this show, who everybody who listens is very familiar with, I, I... I don't mean to embarrass him, but I am going to embarrass him because I'm not sure he's ever been more excited for a guest on our show than for you today. There is a certain way a person from a certain generation's eyes light up when your name is introduced. That must be a feeling, a magnificent feeling, and I imagine it's something that you experience quite a lot. It's uh, it's increasingly the case that uh, people, I don't know how old Mike is, but I'm guessing he's somewhere in the mid to late 20s, uh, probably right in the mid, uh, and they grew up on the Just series, which uh, started in 1997. And basically, you know, for anyone who hasn't read it, I was I was a big fan of The Young Ones. And I was like, why can't we have that energy in children's books, that irreverence, that craziness? I wanted, that was my kind of mission, to translate that energy and give the kids of the mid to late 90s some, a lot of fun to, to get away from the messagey, well-meaning books that were boring everyone stupid and just get back to celebrating, you know, um, 
stupidity uh, in the best sense of that word. And um, Okay, so I, I love that. Like this is like an amazing like perspective because of course like when you watch the young ones and for me it was a real introduction to comedy like my mum and mum used to let me stay up late and watch the young ones with her and of course that anarchic energy that they have is very childlike in many ways and the fact that kids weren't having that energy in their own stories it's such a great observation so do you remember was there a light bulb moment does it come like that or is it a growing understanding when you're watching shows like the the young ones that 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 is missing from children's books it uh, it wasn't initially children's books because i was in a punk rock band in the early 80s and um as far away from the world as children's books as you could get and also (laughs) as far away from television as you could get i was living in a share house that was not unlike the young ones and um, I was, as you mentioned your mother, my mother rang me up and she said, oh, have you seen that awful show on Channel 2? And I said, no, what is it? She said, it's called, uh, she didn't know what it was called, but she said they were hungry and they tipped a rubbish bin up on the table and then they ate a dead rat. And I said, what channel? When? <laughs> I got to go, get back to television. It's, it's good again. Um, so that was my, uh, my light bulb. And as soon as I saw that, I said, that's that's calling to me. Um, and our band was pretty silly as well. But I had this writing, uh, latent writing talent that I'd never really developed. But I went, that's what I want. I want to capture young ones in print. So, um, yeah, I recognised them immediately. As, as And that was the type of music I loved, uh, you know, starting with Devo and anything left of centre, that was my light bulb moments, many of them. Okay, so you talk about the, the – well, I talked about, I brought up the idea of like, you know, a certain generation of people's eyes lighting up when they hear your name, you know, and you say that you recognise that more and more of a certain generation. What's that feeling like, The that knowledge that you've connected with somebody in that way? It's really um, – you know, it's unbelievable. It's exciting because when I started writing, I was like, "What hope do I have?" You know, I'm not, I'm not anyone. I can't write like John Marsden or, or Morris Gleitzman or, you know, like I just want to do this stupid clownish stuff, uh, as if I've ever got a chance. But I, I was a big do-it-yourself kind of person. So with the band, we had made cassettes and we'd get them into shops ourselves and we'd organise our gigs. And uh, so it was all, you didn't wait for a record label as if they would have been interested in us. And that's the pure punk philosophy, just do it. And so I took that same approach to writing and uh, started making little little 12-page books which I would sell at markets around Melbourne um, and in some some shops, readings. Uh, Mark Rubo was brave <laughs> enough to take on a little milk carton full of these books. Um, so it was very much an unlikely thing. But I do remember there was another light bulb moment where I was trying to learn to be a proper writer, like to leave all this kid stuff behind and, like, become uh, the Raymond Carver of my generation. And so I was studying fiction with Carmel Bird, a wonderful fiction writer, and I was doing an editing course. Um, and I was I was trying desperately to be a proper writer, but everything I did would be undercut by this kind of subversive humour, which would just 
take, literally take over the pen and go, no, we're going here. And I go, but, but no. And I'll give you an example. I was, uh, I was very poor for a long time, just living off savings, trying to, you know, cling to the rock face. And Women's Weekly were having a competition, write a romance story and win $1,000. So it was a short romance. So I, I said, hmm, how hard can that be? And started writing it and the, my, my hero and heroine were locked in an embrace and she was melting in his arms. And then the part of my brain that I can't control just goes, what if she was literally melting? Like, really? <laughs> like, just ends up in a puddle around his feet. That would be funny. And... Uh, needless to say, I didn't win the competition, but <laughs> I did think, okay, I give up. I'm not a, a serious, I'm not a fiction, a serious fiction writer. I'm a comedian. I'm a clown, and I'm really just that's what I've got to embrace. Now that felt like I was uh, cutting myself off from a a proper writing career or any sort of career, um, but I was okay with that. I was like, well, that, I'm just going to accept it. I'll be an outsider artist forever, and that's fine. When I'm dead, they'll they'll discover a room full of manuscripts, and they'll go, "That guy was a genius," and uh, and I'll have had the satisfaction of just doing it. So, but I think that's what connected me with kids was I wasn't trying to impress them. Uh, in the end, I was just amusing myself, and that and they go, "Oh, that's interesting." Because they can spot a, a try-hard from a million miles away. And they go, nah. Just There's enough. that uh, interesting quote about children's drawings, which is that like children's drawings are often so good because they know when to stop. And <laughs> I think that I, 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 I get that. I get what you're saying in that like sometimes it's almost about knowing where to stop, going it's funny that she melts. Like that's, that's where to stop. You know, you don't actually need to be this idea that like things need to be too overthought. I think kids can spot that. There is a legitimacy yeah. to that. And uh, kids' imaginations very fertile. They don't actually need much detail, which is good because I'm not very good at descriptive writing. <laughs> <laughs> if we got my wife, an editor, on the uh, on the call, she would say, "You're not good at descriptive writing. You're not good at action sequences. You're not very good at characterization." <laughs> yeah, the man's got to know his limitations and work within them, and it suits me and what I do and kids because I never liked long descriptive passages when I was a kid. I was like, "Just get me to the action. You know, get me, get those kids, get the rid of the parents, get them into trouble, and I want." Want, want it to happen. Yeah, there's a magic faraway tree. I don't need to know what type. It's magic. That's enough. Go. Well, is, I mean, that's very interesting to me. I just was recently speaking to a, a for this show, a, a female comedian by the name of Laurie Kilmartin. She's an American comedian and yeah. she's 56 years old. So it turns out that the streaming channels are not lining up to put a 56 year old woman in the you know slot that they've reserved yeah. for, you know, the latest hot young stand up. But she's released her album, very much that punk rock ethos, well, the modern version of it, you know, you can actually just release an album yourself these days, you know, yep. and it's brilliant. Yeah. But one of the things that I loved about it that I was saying to her was that I couldn't see her because I know what she looks like and I know what someone standing on stage doing jokes looks like. I did not need to see her to enjoy it. In fact, I enjoyed it right. more because I got to fill in some of those details myself. 
Yep. Like sometimes leaving space, as you said, for particularly a child's imagination to fill yep. in the gaps themselves. I don't need you to do it all for me. Right. Like, yeah, he's a, like, he's a policeman and he's big. Okay. I, I reckon I can do the rest from here. Exactly. You know? <laughs> you'll, you'll fill it in with your own life experience and, and make that little uh, scenario your own. And I think that's what happens with a book is it's a collaboration with the, with the uh, reader and them with the author going, these black marks on the page where, you know, we'll, we'll turn this into a story. And if you trust me, I'll trust you and, and off we go. But if you don't trust them, you try to do too much and they get bored and, and walk away. Okay, so I'm interested in when you discovered that it wasn't going to be, can you take me back, that it wasn't just going to be a bunch of manuscripts that they found, you know, in, in in a garage one day, and they were like, "What has Andy been up to?" But people actually, you know, really discovered and connected with your work. Is there a time? Is it did it happen gradually, or is there a really identified time where you can say, "This is when I knew I like something was happening." Uh, it was a gradual. It was a learning um, experience that probably about ten years, I'd say, from starting from the uh, from the young ones. I want to do that to having a book published in 1997. So it began in 87. And there was a lot of lot of writing that hit the wall that didn't quite connect. But about 10% of it was, was saleable. It might be an article in the local paper or, um, you know, a story was accepted. But I began to observe they were all funny. And so that was another clue. I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a comedian. <laughs> I never thought of myself like that. I was a provocateur, but not a funny, um, that wasn't my whole purpose. Uh, but then I had a book of short stories accepted by an educational publisher. I tried to get them, they're all mad little 100, 200 word scenarios, dreams, instructions, how to annoy your parents, uh, how to, uh, you know, some bizarre dream that had no purpose other than, wow. Um, and they said, we won't publish it as a book. And no one wanted to because they couldn't see any merit in it. But we, it could be good for teaching creative writing in the classroom. So I went, okay, well, it's a foot in the door. Right. And uh, at that meeting, they said, we'll get this guy, Terry Denton, to illustrate. He's really funny. I think you two would get along. And when I saw what he'd done, the book was called Swinging on the Clothesline and Other Ways to Annoy People. Uh, and he'd, throw, he'd, he'd drawn the kids flinging off the clothesline, heading to outer space. And I was like, that's exactly what I would have drawn if I could draw. And so I loved what he did. And um, I met him on the publicity circuit. I was going around teacher conferences and I met him and he said, you should publish a book of fiction. And I went, I want to, but no one gets me. And uh, he said, tell them I'll illustrate whatever you do. So then I was a sort of saleable, half semi-saleable package with the great Terry Denton on board. They knew they'd at least get their money back on whatever bomb of a book I put out. But <laughs> I said to him, don't just illustrate it in the normal way. I've seen kids picking books and they just flick through suspiciously to see how big the print is, you know, and if it's too small, nah, not going to read that. I said, put little flick pictures on the edges so that they're at least playing with the book. Because Apart from what I said about trusting the reader, I didn't trust the kids at all. 
to pick up a book and more and hold it for more than five seconds. So all of my work went into um, making the first line of a story utterly memorable and grabbing, but also with Terry to just do Mad Magazine's stream of consciousness around the edge. And that was the beginning of the Just series, which after 10 years, uh, when it came out in April 1997, was an instant overnight success. And Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but even then, I was hedging my bets because I knew I was a, a, a bit of a troublemaker on the nice staid scene of uh, children's literature. So I had one story called Playing Dead where... Uh, they're all first-person present, and I'm always the character. That was borrowed from Seinfeld because I couldn't write about a third person. It didn't feel real to me. But if I said I am in, it's 7 a.m. and I'm still in bed and I should be at school but I'm not, and you know why? Because I'm dead. Um, well, I'm not really dead. I'm just pretending I'm dead. And if I, if I can trick my parents, that'll be great. So they come in and in a you know comic reversal, instead of making him get out of bed, they pretend to think that he's dead and to teach him a lesson, dig a hole in the backyard and, and bury him, literally. And he jumps out and says, I'm not dead, you know, and they and his dad fakes a heart attack. And so he thinks he's killed his father and he has to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. And the mother's screaming, get away from him, you ghoul, zombie, get and he's going, I've driven my mother insane. I've killed my father. And uh, and then his dad starts laughing and says, just tricking, son. And But uh, the comedic uh, character was such that he didn't see this as a defeat. He went, okay, I'm wet, muddy, being the victim of an awful joke, uh, but I got the day off school. So that was <laughs> it. And that took me back, to, well, I learned from watching Seinfeld and uh, that, they said the characters, I think it might be Jerry Seinfeld who said this, the difference between a tragic character and a comedic character is the comedic character suffers but learns nothing. Um, they're ready to make all the same mistakes at the end, whereas a tragic character has a realisation, oh, I'm a goofball, a bit like uh, Tim Smith might have had, although I think he's more <laughs> a comedic character. <laughs> I don't think he's learned anything. Um I'm a goofball. Can I please keep going just the way I was? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that was the first story. And there were others less, um, less incendiary than that. But when the book was read, everyone came back and said, we loved the book and we especially loved playing dead. Um, and I went, great, because I've gone into a dark area, leavened with humour, but you need darkness to get that humour to really you know, pop. Uh, okay, so I'm interested in that because the role of darkness in humour and particularly in children's stories is something that is very interesting to me because obviously, you know, the, you kind of, your grim fairy tales and those sort of stories that you know, kids were originally raised on were yep. often very, very dark, yeah. you know, yeah. had very dark themes that were discussed and then it felt like we did go away from that a little bit. But like children are quite fascinated by dark themes, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, this is where stories, whether they're comedic or scary, uh, serve a really important purpose. They put a name to fears and because to be a child is to be vulnerable, 
utterly dependent on the adults around you. You can't control them. They're like these giants. And so there's a certain amount of, you know, what if, if my parents left me as we deal with in Hansel and Gretel, what would that be like? How would you live and survive? And I think with Hansel and Gretel, um, you know, we go into the darkness there. Parental abandonment. Uh, they find a house made of candy and they, they try to eat as much of it as they can. I'll count that as gluttony. Um, an old woman who is a cannibal tries to fatten Hansel up and eat him and then they push her into the fire um, and that's murder in my book. Yeah. And um, so I, I was very aware of all this thinking, why do we know this story so well? We remember it because it touches real fears and real emotions. They're like... Not all kids are worried about being eaten, but it's good to see those those intrepid characters deal with it. And um, so we need that in, in a story. And as you no doubt well know, if you build tension in an audience through that dark subject matter, uh, a comedian can then pull the rug under it and get big laughs because the audience is like, <gasps> and then not nah, going there. And so it served comedic purposes as well as traditional storytelling needs. Okay, so when you're first starting telling stories, then it is an experiment. You're like you're dipping your toe in the water in the way that, um, you know, you're saying, will they accept this story about this kid pretending to be dead? It deals with death. It deals with, like, wagging school. Like, you know, even on that level, there's some element of, like, should we be telling some fun story about a kid who's, like, wagging school, right? Like, but now, like, the point you are in your storytelling journey, how does the story come about now? Like, do you start still trying to find new areas to, you know, is, is there things you haven't talked about yet or where does the – I mean, I, I know this is the equivalent of asking a you know, stand-up comedian where do you get your ideas from, but <laughs> I don't really – it's not quite what I'm asking you. I like to know where the inspiration for a new story comes from. Well, the inspiration for just tricking and playing dead was a real – like a real serious desire just to – be stupid and create laughter and get kicked. But uh, combined with I really wanted kids to read, I didn't want them to just walk away and think books are for chumps. Um, I wanted books to have the same freedom that movies, computer games and any other electronic media had and say you can have both. You don't have to choose either or. So that was the underlying purpose. So once I had the green light on playing dead, I went, ah, Okay, you want? I can go further. I, you want more of that? I can give you more of that. So then, just annoying came about where the kid has turned not to into a practical joker, but just to a really annoying kid. He's, he's like, "This is my art, annoying people." <laughs> now, the resistance I was getting at that point was, "You shouldn't tell stories to, to about that because you'll encourage the kids to think that's okay, and they'll all go out of control." That was the battle I fought, um, a running street battle with librarians, parents, reviewers, everyone. And I said, that's not how kids read. They are perfectly capable of, of reading a story about a kid who transgresses and enjoying it in that form, but not thinking that it's real life. Just like all you adults enjoy midsummer murders, 
on ABC on Friday nights without needing to go out and go, oh, I might do a bit of murder. That seems like a fun thing. <laughs> um, so gradually I won that battle because they realised the effects were that kids would read more after one of my talks or uh, encountering a book. And they went, oh, he's, he's, he's joking and and kids can take a joke <laughs> and kids aren't automatons who just get something in and do it. Um, it would be very easy to raise children if they were, uh, if you just tell them something and they go, oh, okay, I'll do that. I'll tidy up my room. Thanks for the tip. Um, <laughs> you get further by acknowledging truth and, and that was confronting for adults. So we went through the Just series. Uh, I was in, they were increasingly young ones um, oriented, just stupid, just crazy, just disgusting. Where I was just, I was just literally experimenting. Where's the edges? Where, how far can I go before you know it, it all blows up? And the kids were encouraging me, and I was just like, yeah, stick a, stick this to the the. The, the uh, CBC, who would never give me the Children's Book Council. <laughs> oh, no, we can do better than that. Uh, kids deserve very well-written books. And I go, they are well-written, but they're not what you think. They're not what you want to read. Um, so I put out the day my bum went psycho as a joke. Um, the kids would ask me, what are you going to write next? And I'd say, oh, I'm going to write a serious book next. And they'd all go, oh. I'd say, it's called The Day My Bum Went Psycho. And they'd all laugh <laughs> and they'd say, there's nothing funny about that. So it was just a running joke that developed in front of audiences. So I was a visiting author in schools for uh, at least 10 years. And that was four shows a day, four, four 50-minute sessions. Um, could be a workshop, could be three talks, could be four talks, no workshop. But I was literally talking with kids every day and, and so it built up from there. And ideas would come out of um, just messing about. So improvising with an, with an audience. I'd say, has any of you ever had a shower? And they go, yeah. <laughs> and I said, how many of you put your foot on the plug hole and tried to fill up the cubicle? Yes! You know, <laughs> I flooded it. I did this, I did that. And so th I'd, I'd sense, okay, here's a new area yeah. we can go into. And I'd improvise a little story with them and then convert it into fiction at the end of the year in my three writing months. Um, but then, so we did The Day My Bum Went Psycho. That got the predictable outrage and was, um, yeah, re reviled by uh, the gatekeepers and loved by the kids. And, and you, when this is happening, like, have you moved beyond at this stage this whatever yeah, desire, as small as it might be for you know, I don't know, a critical, you know, approval. And are you just loving the fact, like, are you, like, I mean, I would love it. Like, if you put out a book called yeah. the, the Day My Bum Went Psycho and everyone hated, like, all the mainstream people, like, you know, like the Toffs hated it and the kids loved it. To me, that would be, this is awesome. This is like the peak of my powers. I couldn't feel any better about what I'm doing. Is that, tell me that was the feeling you were having at the time. That was exactly the feeling I had. And I was up for a fight with anyone, you know, yeah. there were a lot of them. And I was like fighting for children's rights yeah. to read <laughs> and imagine anything. Um, 
So so I went back again for another third zombie bums from Uranus um, <laughs> and then a third bumageddon, the final pong flick, <laughs> where I finally used up every bum pung in the, in the world. <laughs> no, I didn't. There was a fourth. What bummosaur is that? Uh, I, a book of identifying uh, bummosaurs. Um so that was happening, and at the same time, I really wanted Terry to come out of the margins and into the spotlight because I could sense there was this enormous um, potential in what he did. People were loving his marginals, and I was like, if I could, if we could combine and work together, that would be amazing. And so we started meeting every couple of weeks, sitting in a room, literally coming up with a book from scratch together. And we did the bad book, um, which was gave us utter freedom. We said everything in the book's going to be bad, bad characters doing bad things and bad words and bad this. And that really shit really hit the fan on that one because we we did transgress that we we pushed the gatekeepers beyond <laughs> what they could take. Uh, there was two examples. One was a a little Willie poem. Now, these are dark poems from the 1930s and 40s. Uh, Little Willie, uh, in his best of sash sashes, fell into the fire and was um, um, and turned to ashes. After a while, the wind grew chilly, but nobody liked to poke poor Willie. Um, so there, there's a whole raft of these. And I, and I wrote my own. I said, Little Willie took a match and set fire to a cat said Little Willie as it burnt, I bet the cat hates that. <laughs> you know, you'd recognise that as comic understatement. Uh, and then he goes on to set fire to his bum and says that was pretty dumb and then sets fire to his head and says soon I will be dead. <laughs> now, no one cared about his bum or his head, but everyone went for this cat and they said you cannot, you're encouraging kids to set fire to cats. I said, oh, for goodness sakes, can we you know, <laughs> read a little bit sophisticated here? But they couldn't. Um, so I changed it to set fire to his knee. Oh, ouch, that's hurting me. No problem after that. That's fine. He's allowed to set fire to himself. <laughs> he's the one suffering. So there's a morality here that if you do, if you are doing something dumb and you're the one who suffers, we can handle that ethically. But if you're just setting fire to cats and delighting in it and appearing to get away with it, even if they're fictional cats, as readers, we become very uncomfortable and go, that's that's not right, you know. If I'd had the cat come back and set fire to him, I think it would have been marginally acceptable. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so this one really um, went crazy. I was on Current Affair. Mm. It was, you know, like I was living the dream, the bad author, and booksellers wouldn't keep it in the shops. They, you have to ask for it. And, they would, and there was film of some guy climbing a ladder in the storeroom, getting the bad book off the shelf. I mean, you must love it because, I mean, a guy who's been, like, you know, in a punk band, has that DIY ethos, that sort of, you know... I, I want to question the system and the way things are and the way messages are communicated. Suddenly to be, you know, you and Salman Rushdie are both me. <laughs> you have to ask for <laughs> behind the counter. I, I did have limits, <laughs> unlike Salman Rushdie. 
Um, <laughs> no fat was Everything was fine. But it, it, um, you must have, but yeah. yeah, it must have been very, I, I mean, there must have been a great energy to that, I imagine. And books were being talked about and exciting and kind of a bit dangerous. And that's what I wanted to create. Um, after that, we did we did a really stupid one there. Um, we just started a poem where the same sound was over and over again. So Ed and Ted and Fred lived in a shed and Ed liked and, and Fred was a dog and Fred bit Ed's head and Ed's head bled. And so he said, I'm fed up with your dog biting my head. I'm leaving this shed. And he jumped into his car, which was red, and away that he fled. And uh, Ted chased after him in a sled and they came to a traffic light, which was red, and they all smashed into each other and ended up dead and blood came out of them and it was red. And... <laughs> I realised you could just generate a story by just sticking to that rule. I mean, it's it's hard work, but you get there. So I thought that would make a great children's book if you took away the dead and the red. And so we did a children's reader that called The Cat on the Mat is Flat in exactly <laughs> that style. <laughs> and Ed and Ted appear, but they don't smash into each other. They just fall over a cliff and end up being swallowed by a whale called Ned, um, <laughs> who blows them out of the top of their head. Um, so it's a happy ending. Uh, so that started a development away from outrage to, oh, I can do other things. Mm -hmm. And if, there was a half a dozen experimental books, um, another bad book. People started getting used to it for the second bad book, the very bad book. wasn't as much outrage, which was great. Um, and then uh, Bamasaur and what body part is that till we hit the treehouse where we were actually trying to write the very, very bad book. And we, we would take a week away at my parents' holiday house down outside National uh, Wilson's Promontory National Park. Very desolate place, nothing else to do but write. And I said, Terry, what have you got? What have you got for me? And he had a picture of a little tiny bird holding a very large gun. <laughs> And it was the cutest bird, <laughs> violent, awful gun. And I went, oh, my God, that is so funny. But I, there's nowhere else to go after this. You've, we've hit the wall. We haven't, we've run out of ideas. And uh, I said, that would make a bad book. We'll just waste the reader's time uh, telling him why we can't write the book. And, but we'll make a whole book out of not having a book. Sounds a bit like Seinfeld at this point, <laughs> a show about nothing. So this was literally a book about nothing. I said, and the kids are all talking about how, our relationship because Terry would draw pictures of me being flattened by pianos and things. So they would ask about this. Did you know that he did this? I said, no. And they'd say, look, it's on page 68 of Just Stupid. And I go, right, when I get home, I'm going to smash a piano on his face. And they go, do you live together? And I go, yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a, bit of a violent household. So I said, let's do that. We'll live in a treehouse, but it'll be dangerous with sharks in, in an unfenced tank and a bowling alley where bowling balls are falling out and killing people who are walking past. And this will be part of the very, very bad book. But then when he drew it, he added all this other stuff, 13 levels, and I went, oh, my God, I didn't know you could draw like that. 
And he said, oh, yeah, I used to be an architecture student, but I dropped out to work in a record shop. <laughs> His classic career, a path for an illustrator. Um, but he was a great architect drawer. So I was, I was loving this drawing and I said, let's make that the story. We're living in a 13-storey treehouse, every kid's dream, where our, our jobs are to write a book, but we can't because there's so much going on in the treehouse. So that was the treehouse. And Terry was illustrating it fully. So there was very, um, I was only writing a quarter of a page of text and his pictures were conveying the whole thing to the reader. And the, the reader could just inhale it. No description required from me. Hey, check out our thirteen-story treehouse, Terry. I need a double story. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you fix it. Um, but that's what where we were saying. The kids didn't need me to say very much. Just put the idea in their head. And so that book took off like nothing else. Like the just had been really successful, but this now spoke to children as young as four and five, uh, up to 12, 13 years old and amused their parents. And we, we dialed the gratuitous violence and gratuitous disgustingness back to, I would say, about 5%, mm. whereas the Just Books were like 80% more the better. Um, I discovered through trial and error, it took 25 books, that you only need 5% of that. And that's enough for most people. <laughs> so that, so that was a development of sorts. And um, and these days, I, I would much prefer to be a well loved author than the the street fighter because that did become exhausting right. after a while. And you went in kind of bracing yourself for all. Yeah, I, I did lose my taste for it after it took a few years, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's also, I hope, I think probably a very natural and healthy thing, I would hope. It yeah. might be too much to be constantly, constantly angry, but also like in that trap of constantly pushing the envelope. Like there is a point where like the envelope, you know, there there is a limit to that. Like it's not yeah. like you wanted to actually get to the level where you were, you know, doing things that you felt like probably were dangerous to children. You probably know more no. about speaking to children than, than most. So... Like, I mean, I don't expect you to answer as an expert. This is just, I'm asking for your personal opinion. But what do you think is the biggest mistake that parents make when it comes to getting their kids interested in books? Like, I'll, we'll start with very close to home. Like, why, like, you know, what could they be doing better in getting their kids interested in books? Um, your kid may not be interested in the type of book you think they should be interested mm. in. So yeah. I often say, look, you connect with the kid. Uh, if, they're, if it's cars and engines that turn them on, a car magazine is where the energy may be. For me, it was horror comics, pre-code. Oh, actually, I had 1970s horror comics, Twilight Zone kind of weirdo things. But now my great passion is finding the pre-code before they brought in standards in America. They're, those magazines, those comics are just out of control, mayhem from cover to cover. Um, but that, that was a big part of what I loved as a kid, horror comics, and they taught me a lot about storytelling and economy of words. And uh, Now, it's not what a librarian would be 
generally recommending to children or parents. But if you can connect with where the kid is, and that, that involves going to a library or an op shop and buying a box full of random books and just letting them find what, what kind of works for them can be a really um, good good place to start. And, and also I say let them see you reading books because probably, you know, it's that thing, actions speak far louder than words. Um, you can give them a lecture on books all you like, whatever. But if they see you reading books, taking pleasure in books, doesn't have to be James Joyce. It can be a, a cheap thriller. They'll go, oh, okay, well, they're reading books. And yeah, so that was, they would be my two bits of advice. They're good bits of advice. Like, I mean, I, I think the one about particularly going to people's passions, like you said something very simple there, but I thought it was quite insightful, which is the idea of like, what type of books? Because... Like, you know, you could say, like, oh, my kid doesn't like movies if you've only been showing him Schindler's List and he's, like, five. Like, right. it's not, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I think exactly. that you're right. It's about get and this is often, like, one of my little mini rants about the education system is that so often I think the most valuable thing about education is to give somebody a love of learning because right. the thing that I do know about life is that you're going to have to keep learning things. Unfortunately, it's really annoying but you're going to have to keep learning how to do things. You're going to, so if you have some capacity to enjoy learning or enjoy learning how to do something new or learn a new skill, then if we drown that out of people at high school because the learning that we've given them isn't the sort of learning they like, so now they hate all learning, you know, they, they associate a book with it being schoolwork. They associate learning with it being some subject that's not relevant to them rather yeah. than the fact that, like you said, if you like cars, for example, and you want to like tinker with a car on the weekends, you're still going to have to research some stuff and learn how to do some stuff to be able to do that. And it would be better for you if, and if you like Dane Cook, do you know who Dane Cook is? He's an American stand-up comedian. And um, there was a period of time where he was not very well liked by the stand-up comedy community. It was very easy to put fun on Dane Cook because he was sort of this all his audience were like 16 year old girls you know he was sort of the 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 teeny bopper comedian and <laughs> Chris Rock Chris Rock was asked about it and Chris Rock said he said I love what Dane Cook's doing because there's no 16 year old girls at my shows and if 16 year old girls get to love stand up comedy because okay. they're going to Dave Dane Cook shows Guess what? They're gonna like go. Hey, they're gonna say, "Hey, I like stand-up comedy," and then they're gonna start looking around at other things that are also stand-up comedy and go, "Well, maybe I like Chris Rock, or maybe I'll go and see this other thing as well." Yeah. Which is, I, I think, so often we potentially miss out on so many people who like. There's so many people who would say, "I don't like reading," or "I don't like books." Who would like reading and would like books if reading and books had been presented to them in the right way in the first place. Yeah, and if they had, like reading is not a natural skill. It's a it's mm. a really complex thing that our brains do. And in the beginning, reading is a lot of work. You know, the cat sat on the, if you had a kid learning to read, you'll, you'll know how much effort there is. But so it, it gets better with practice. And if you can make those early reading experiences pleasurable with whatever silliness or pictures or, or humour you can, they're more likely to get the skills that when they're 
when you come along with a slightly more challenging book, they can go, oh, yeah, I can, I can at least read it. And I, I used to, well, I still think there's a couple of levels of reading. Some You need just a level of functional literacy. It can make a big difference to your life in, in all sorts of ways. Um, I remember talking to a kid in South Australia, a remote school, and he said, I don't need to read. I don't need to. I don't want to read. I'm going to be a sports star. And I was like, well, you're going to need to read contracts. Otherwise, those people are going to run rings around you and you're going to be the dupe, you know. So there's that level of reading. But then some of us will go on to embrace reading as, a, you know, a lifelong passion. Uh, I don't expect all of my readers or, or people to do that. But, and that's a pure choice. Just like some people will go to a comedy show, have a laugh and then get on with their life. And others of us are just like obsessed with comedy and, and all its variations. But I, I do want everyone to have a functional level of literacy. I think that and, and a functional level of being able to find out what you need to find out and, and a level of critical thinking uh, would be really helpful in the Australian electorate at the moment. And a level of imagination, of a freedom of imagination would be really helpful for uh, our leaders. Uh, one in particular, I suspect, has not got an imaginative vision of where things could, could go. And I think this is, you know, uh, something that can be developed and um, cultivated through, through early reading. Can we talk a little about the world as you say it? Because I like I'm you, you've there's been elements of it that have definitely you know come through in the conversation we've been having, regardless. But I I would love for us to speak a little bit more directly to it, if you don't mind. It doesn't have to be. I just love your take on where you feel like we're at as a world. Like you know, I mean, you talk about imagination, you talk about leadership. I. I feel I can't help but in my worst moments feel so disappointed about what's happened over the last couple of years because I think that there were so many more opportunities for imagina- imagination and leadership and I would dare say compassion than were displayed. You know, I just think if you know, if leaders are having press conferences every day, I understand that there is some business that needs to be imparted, like you know, there was a practical reason for those press conferences, but the yeah. thing that I thought was a wasted opportunity was they were also appointments that a lot of people were listening in every day where we could have used our imagination. We could have used our creativity. We could have used our community and our compassion for each other in much more positive ways than the ways that were being imagined. Like it it felt like to me, you know, to speak through the prism of my own community, right? So, which is obviously yeah. always the easiest thing to do, which is the, co- the comedy community. You yeah. know, you talked about there would be like, what are you going to do for the arts, right? Like how could you support artists in these times? Well, artists were too busy supporting other people in those times, like making shows and making pieces of work and those sort of things. The idea that the government didn't have the imagination to be able to go, rather than us having a big package that we can give to theatres in 18 months from now, Mm. is there some way that we can get like $2,000 to each of these like comedians who is doing their Zoom show or they're like making their little web series at home or to these writers who are now have the time to write because guess what you know like they're at their you know normally they're working their part-time job and they don't actually have the hours they're stuck at home for nine months here's what we could do as a country 
come out of this pandemic not only with a whole bunch of healthy people but with an incredibly healthy arts scene like for example could have been one of the things with just a little bit of imagination we could have seen the last two years as not a negative but actually a net positive yeah and i was lucky enough to be in the position where it was a net positive because i could go very deep into the writing and you know plan out and think through things that i hadn't had the time to do um but I do a massive failure on the parts of um, at least the federal government and probably the state government too, just to see that art is not an optional extra. It's not the icing on the cake. It's an essential part of the cake because what are we here for if, you know, not we're not just here to live and work and consume and then, you know, spend out whatever span of life uh there's there's more and art speaks to the spirit and and energizes us and triggers that compassion and gives us uh, different thoughts about how we can different alternatives to live our life and the it's been reflected in education too i think we've been on this track for 20 or 30 years of seeing education as uh, jobs-oriented. What, what are you going to get at the end? Oh, you're going to be qualified as an engineer? Good. That's a useful, practical um, skill. We can build a bridge. Great. Uh, you, you're doing an arts course. Where did, what's that going to get you? You know, it's, well, you know, for me, it was five years of just wandering through English literature and reading the uh, from old English through middle English through renaissance middle I didn't know what it was all for I just knew it was really fascinating and I was developing skills that eventually would provide a platform for me as a as a children's writer so I could plunder a thousand years of uh, of literature <laughs> steal ideas directly from it Tristan life and opinions of Tristan Shandy I owe a great deal to um no, I, there was no way of planning the outcome there. It was committing to a process that was was without a concrete, an obvious concrete goal. And that's where I think uh, education and and government have have really gone seriously wrong. Um, they've, they've, they're missing the real point of it all. So... So, yeah, the idea, and again, it comes back to imagination a little, doesn't it? Which is the idea that with an engineer, we already know what it is that they can do. Yeah. Doesn't mean that we don't need them. Of course, we absolutely need engineers. Good thing to, if somebody wants to be an engineer, of course, like we need engineers. And they will use a but lot of imagination other, in, in right. building that bridge too. And also the other thing is though, there is an element of we can see it. We know what it is. Right. Whereas like what we're talking about with the arts is often more intangible. Yeah. Like you have to, in, like not everyone who does an engineering course is going to build a bridge, right? Yeah. Like in the same yeah. way as not everyone who does an arts course is going to end up with a career in the arts. But yeah. like you've got a value that both are important to do regardless. Yeah. I, I used to think that about writing courses. Um, many people do writing courses only a tiny percentage will go on to be professional writers, but others will will discover things just through the practice of journaling that will make their lives richer and better. Others will discover, no, it wasn't writing in the first place. Uh, it was actually something, it was, it was stand-up comedy I wanted to do. And that will, so it's not a wasted course, even if it doesn't 
produce the obvious outcome at the end. So I think, you know, you get used, you get comfortable with that as an artist, not knowing um, where it's leading. But Well, yeah, it, it, it's harder for governments, I think, if, if they can't measure something, they don't value it. I think that is, right. and it's harder to measure. It, the contribution. Yeah, but I was reading, I can't remember what it was, but I was reading something recently suggested uh, that our current Prime Minister, it's very hard to work out what his vision for the country is. Mm. We know what all the previous Prime Ministers wanted, you know, Abbott wanted wanted a return to the 50s, um, I think it said, or if not the 12th century. Um, uh, you know, Keating had, had the big vision. Uh, Whitlam was all imagination and very little practical um, application. But it said I c- they can't work out what, what this current leader is is about. Is it just staying in power? What for? Is it because... Well, it is. And, of course, it is. Like, I mean, that is the only thing that you could absolutely draw from, like, your observations. Because I think that the times that the world's just been through... there. Like regardless of what your political affiliations are, you, you could clearly identify two types of leaders. One who thought the whole thing was a massive inconvenience and really wanted it to be over as quickly as possible so they could get back to normal. Yep. And the other sort of leader, which was the leader who went, this is why I wanted to be the leader. Right. Because right. I thought that when shit went down, I would be the person who would be best to be in charge of this and try to handle it. Yeah. Doesn't mean that they got it right, but you saw that emerge in leaders in different places. People saying, no, no, this is why I ran to be leader. I wanted to be in charge so that when people faced a challenge like this, I could help them you know, through that challenge. Yeah. And the, the person we have in charge in this country is not in that second category. No, and it's been really interesting to see the state premiers, you know, the power go to those people who were doing far more of that leadership that we're all craving. Um, you know, they get it wrong, sure, but I think with, um, say, Dan Andrews in Victoria, you felt like someone knew, knew what was going on and I think at a certain point children need that from their parents. They, they need a sense that there are boundaries and that someone is in charge and that helps the child to to be a much happier, productive member of society. And I think we as, uh, and I could draw a writing analogy, uh, when you're reading a book, if you get the sense that the author is not quite sure what they're doing, you get a bit jittery. And um, you need to have that sense. Roald Dahl has it. Uh, The minute you start reading, you go, ah, I can relax. I'm in the hands of someone who knows where you know, it's got the steering wheel, knows where we're going, and then you'll go anywhere with them. Um, and I think leaders need that as well, but we're not seeing that at a federal level. Um, when you look at the world, you've often talked to children about scary things, you know, like, I mean, yeah, comedically scary things, but scary things, you yeah. know. And the world, I imagine, if you're a child, would be incredibly scary right now. Like, I mean, you know, the practical, like climate change isn't something I don't think until you're like a teenager that you really understand perhaps like what that is. But if you're a kid, kid, like being locked at home for a couple of years, you get regardless of, you know, what age you are, that something scary is happening that means that you can't go to school, that you can't see your friends, those sort of things. Do you, what are your observations of like, you know, the world that kids are looking at at the moment? It's a, it's a difficult time because normally 
fears are based on sort of nothing and you can talk someone out of it. Whereas climate change actually is something. And um, it's, it's really tough when we're not getting proper leadership uh, to, that you feel like something is being done. As uh, Simon Holmes, a court with Climate 200, the, uh, the phrase is active hope. There, if, if we can feel like there is something we can do, feel some power, uh, you feel much better. And if we can get a few more independents into the Australian Parliament, I honestly believe, I think, that it will break the deadlock between the, the parties just running lines. Um, some more science-educated, community-minded people who are not beholden to a major party, I think is the way through. So I'm clinging to that hope. And, and I do think there's, there's always something you can do. Um, so I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. And I'm aware that history goes two steps forward, one step back. I've seen that in my own artistic development, um, that it's not always linear. I wish it was, uh, but it's not. And so the recent conference on climate, there's been some gains and I'm, I'm not going to discount those and just focus on the, the doom and gloom. Um, and I would also look at the pandemic, how fast things changed, how quickly we got used to a new way of doing things. And I think that speaks well for climate change. I think the realisation now is coming through and, um, and we can change what needs to be done. Massive, massive change, um, but fingers crossed we'll, we'll make it. But it is a... Well, I mean, if you, want to run, if you want to run for Prime Minister, like you've got a certain like, group of people coming into the right age demographic to really dominate that young people's vote <laughs> at the very least, I would have thought. <laughs> well, I'll have imagination if nothing else. <laughs> Is there a story um, that you haven't told yet? I mean, I, I know that there will be many more stories to tell, but there is there one already that you have that you haven't told yet or you, isn't the time to tell yet or that you don't have the language to tell yet? That's a good question. Um, I, I do keep getting people asking, when, when do we get a memoir or an autobiography? Um, but... Whenever I think about it seriously, um, I don't. Th I feel like the books I'm writing now are a much more realistic portrait of what I'm about and what it's like inside my head than if I just listed the events and the the facts. Um, that would seem to me a diversion from the real business of celebrating imagination and humour. Um, so, yeah, every time I try to, I, I look at it seriously, I just go, nah, I'd rather, I'd rather just be back in the playpen. Um, and that's, I think, what everyone ultimately wants. I did once write a book called um, Fast Food and No Play Makes Jack a Fat Boy. And the subtitle was Creating a Healthier Lifestyle for You and Your Children. That was my worst-selling book ever. <laughs> <laughs> To, to my disappointment, um, written in conjunction with a personal trainer and a dietitian, it, it contained the fictional story of a mother trying to get yeah. the family more healthy. 
um, and all the barriers she was facing, you know, even in a supermarket right at eye level, all the candy. Um, and so each chapter would deal, would show this in a humor, gently humorous way. The dietitian would provide tips and the personal trainer would give you a little hint. Basically, it was saying, I think we all need to move more, uh, drink more water, uh, eat more fresh food and veg fresh fruit and vegetables. And, you know, that will make a big difference to people's lives. Um, but the, the public did not, we're not ready for that. In <laughs> no, not ready for that message. <laughs> <laughs> and so the message I kind of got back was, yeah, is this, is this for kids or for adults? Is it fact yeah. or fiction? Uh, are you serious or just messing around? And um, can we have some more of that funny stuff? Because we really like that. <laughs> and I was like, yep, I'll stay in, I'll stay in my uh, area of expertise. So I honestly feel if I do that, that's the, the biggest thing I can do for, for the world, I guess, um, is keep providing that, that uh, energy and hope that I think good good comedy provides. Great. So this brings us to the central conceit of the show, which is do you have a life philosophy, which is a broader question that really I'm asking about, you know, you know what you believe your meaning of you know, being here in whatever this is is. So I'd like to simplify it a little bit by asking somebody if they have a life philosophy and then we take it from there. So do you have a life philosophy? I think uh, I like your phrase, whatever this is whatever this, this is, um, I think I don't know why we're here. I don't know what it's all about, but I'm so freaking glad I'm here. And, like, let's milk it for all it's worth while we can. So if there's something that excites you or me, then embrace it. Go, go for it because, you know, you could be dead tomorrow. Um, and I literally was almost dead at uh, the age of 16, uh, we rolled off a mountain on Mount Donabuang. Uh, the car rolled a number of times. Uh, none of us were killed, but I walked away from... I didn't think about it for 10 years until I was reading a um, uh, some biography of a writer who said many writers have near-death experiences and that's what can trigger the writing. And I went, oh, yeah, I wish I had a near-death experience. I've got nothing like that. Hang on, <laughs> I shouldn't even be here. And so that kind of realisation over and over again makes you, I think, make me more likely to take courageous steps, like leaving my teaching job and chancing it as a writer because I figured you only get one life and um, you, should, you should do not what you want to, not stupidly, but you should go with that excitement and I guess, yeah, I can never understand people who are bored because I think there is so much to, to not be bored about. So that's <laughs> that's my uh, philosophy. Uh, so you, you mentioned death. Uh, do you think about death? Like, I mean, obviously the question I normally ask is what do you think happens when we die? So what do you think happens when we die? Well, I don't. I almost was there. Um, nothing much happened as I was rolling around in the car. And I, I look. I do think. I think it's probably how I imagine it is that the history of the world was billions of years. And where was I? I was like, there was no I. I was 
non-existent. I was I was neither warm nor cold, uh, happy or sad. I was completely at peace. I think on balance of probabilities, that's where we're going back to, just like going to sleep at night. Uh, you, you drift off and you're not aware of anything anymore. So that, I think that's... That, that's what I think happens when you die. And so you might as well make the most of being awake while you can. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you two questions about a perfect day. One is a perfect work day, like if it was going to, you know, a creative day, like, you know, well, I assume a creative day, but I don't want to, it can be whatever you want, but a perfect work day and then yep. a uh, just a perfect non-work day, a day where not work is not part of your day. Okay, uh, perfect work day is Friday because uh, that's drinks night at, um, <laughs> at, uh, for me and <laughs> Jill. Uh, and so we would, I would get up probably 6 a.m. I would read, I would meditate for 20 minutes or so. I'd go and do an hour of exercise in the gym or run or swim or some form of movement. I think that's really connected to the imagination. I'd then take a long breakfast where I either read a book or read news, uh, get to the desk by about 10 a.m., uh, knock myself out till about 3 p.m. About four or five hours of creative uh, work is, I think, plenty. It's a lot of brain power, a lot of decision-making. And then at three, no, no um, a little bit of yard work maybe, uh, <laughs> and at, and at 4.30, we break out the gin and then <laughs> put on uh, Triple R and uh, <laughs> listen to the Skull Cave and drift off into a world of music and carefree drunkenness. Uh, so that's a, that's a perfect work day for me. But, okay, give me the perfect um, day where there's no work. Uh, it would just be working on my parents' block down at the national, outside the national park, just uh, hacking stumps out of the ground, mowing, um, chopping wood, burning a huge campfire, and um, and you know at four thirty the gin comes out. And- <laughs> There's a consistent theme between the two days. <laughs> <laughs> but at night, the entertainment is campfire and stars. That's how I spent Melbourne Cup weekend. Um, uh, what so is it about that outdoor connection? Like, what is it about th- that? That, like, I mean, because I've recently, it, we've had a tree change in the last couple of years, actually, at the start right. of COVID. And so, and of course, the COVID meant that I wasn't traveling for work. You know, I spent a lot yes. of time working in the garden like i mean that's really we have Me a big too. garden and i was working in the <laughs> garden and i was like well this is quite good but i haven't quite i haven't done it for long enough yet to understand what it is exactly that is appealing about it to me yet do you know what it is appealing about it to you i think it's a release from um mental you know strategic mm. mental activity uh, you're still thinking about what you're doing but you don't need a lot of mental activity to be hacking out a stump from the ground. It's just good, honest toil, and you feel honestly tired at the end of it. Um, and I love being out, outdoors. Like that is just a joy to me all the time. If I can work outside when when the weather's not too bad, that's what I'll do. Um, because you don't feel like you're in, you're trapped inside. So, yeah, I think it's just the lack, the release from um, mental effort. 
And, and storytelling is a very pleasant form of mental effort, but it is strategic. You're solving problems. You're creating problems for your characters to solve. And, of course, you're the one solving them. And, uh, <laughs> very, very satisfying, but it can be intensely annoying and stressful. And often it's that thing when you're hacking at the stump, you're, you're, you're accessing a different part of your brain. And you'll you'll come across a solution that couldn't have occurred to you when you're really hard at work at the desk. So yeah, that's the ah. Oh, what about I do that? Yes, I'm, I I that's the one I get the most. Is it's like I you know, and it, for years it was one of the things that my partner and I had to discuss, which was. The 15 minutes when I come out of the office and I'm cleaning leaves out of the pool is actually the most important 15 minutes because so much of what I've just been thinking about for the last few hours, just like I just needed to stop staring at my computer and go and do something that involved me thinking about something else and it'll just fall into place, you know? Yeah, and um, uh, Jacinta Parsons recently did a series, How to Live Younger, and I was thrilled to watch that because it, there was scientific evidence for a lot of what I would say is the benefits of movement, including I think it was the hypothalamus, if that's uh, in the brain, actually expands with movement and that kind of connects all the parts of your brain. So it's what I've long kind of suspected without having any um, proof apart from feeling good and, and ready to work when I'm at the desk after having moved. I'm going to ask you about advice. What's your relationship to advice? Like, uh, do you ask people for advice? Are you a person who offers advice? I assume that people, a lot of people ask you for advice. So, like, what's your relationship to advice? (laughs) I'm a big uh, self-help psychology consumer, and I have been since the age of 10 when uh, my mother used to run a, uh, secondhand bookshop at the school fate so for two months before our spare bedroom would fill up with thousands of books and i'd be in there reading the magic power of your mind how to <laughs> how to have a much happier better productive life and i was fascinated always by that and i think that's been very very helpful over the years so i'm getting advice from books and podcasts and wherever i can get it um, so, yeah, I'm a big consumer of information. Um, advice, I will try to give it very sparingly and I'll try to work out what sort of advice and how much they, uh, the person wants. Like you get, can you read my manuscript and give me some feedback, which, of course, you should say no. Mm-hmm. Um, but the few times I've done it, you know, you give them feedback and they go, well, I just, you've just crushed them like a bug. <laughs> I didn't want you to crush me like a bug. I just wanted to be back. Oh, Sorry, what, what, I, what, I, what I actually meant was, could you read my manuscript and tell me it's great? That's what I'm actually asking you. <laughs> it is It is great, yeah. Bill. I don't need to read it. <laughs> great. You keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> How are you at um, getting advice? Like, as in, like, I mean, I know you seek it out. You said that, but, like, if – an editor or a, like you know some a friend you know gives you advice about your work or your life you know it doesn't have to be like always work focused it could be like advice yeah. about how you're conducting yourself or how you behaved in a certain circumstance <laughs> or any of those sort of things that we can all get advice on how do you accept advice 
Uh, I would accept that probably grudgingly, um, <laughs> except when it comes to manuscripts and editing. I, uh, apparently I'm an editor's dream because I'm like, tell me how to make it better. You know, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm too close to this to really know how it's going to come across to a third party. And so I did a, an editing course and I learned enough to know how easy it is to mis, uh, mislead a reader. And so, yeah, I love having people hack into a manuscript and I don't always take everything that they'll say. I, I will say, yes, I, I know that, but I need it to be this way. But that's all right. I've been challenged. And, um, yeah, I'll... I'll take I'll take advice and feedback pretty well in general. Yeah. Is there a piece of advice, something that you gleaned out of these, you know, the self help books or the podcasts, any of these sort of things? Was there a, is there one that you absolutely loved to have learnt? Like, um, you know, I I speak a lot about the idea of, yeah, you know, I when I do this show, like often this is my version of a self-help book. You know, I get to talk to all these really yeah. interesting people and there'll be so many things. There'll be something that you say today, have said today that, you know, a week from now, a month from now, six months from now, a situation will arise and I will think of that and it will have made my life better from the fact that we've had this conversation. Is there one that you can identify that's sticky for you, like there was a real game changer? There's been so many, it's very difficult. Um, one that has got me through the pandemic, I think, really well has been a, um, a little email I subscribed to, The Daily Stoic. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know uh, that. Yeah, of course, yeah. Brilliant. He just writes a little, you know, 500-word essay on some aspect of life and uh, it's always back to your power. Yes, everyone else is doing it wrong and the world is going to hell in a handcart. But you just worry about yourself and how you're affecting the world and just trust because you cannot, you cannot affect the big picture but you can take actions in your life you know, on the micro scale that are positive. And so that, that always reassures me every, every day and I read that religiously. Um, Ryan, yeah, what's his name? It's Ryan, someone is it? Holiday. Ryan Holiday. Ryan that's Holiday. right. Ryan Holiday. Yeah. So I very, I really enjoy his stuff. Like I can be a little, yeah, skeptical about some of the influences in those fields. You know that there are some people who yep. think they know a lot more than it feels to me that they actually know. But he seems like a very well researched and interesting dude. And every time I hear or read something of his, it always is provocative and interesting to me. Yeah, and uh, and I would say Byron Katie too. Uh, I was a big fan of Eckhart Tolle for a long time, but Byron Katie is kind of the practical application of the more theoretical toll. Um, and she would just say, uh, in any situation and you have thoughts, ask yourself, is it true? Uh, is this thought that I'm having actually true? Uh, can I know that it's true beyond all shadow of it? Well, yeah, it feels true. Can I know that it's true beyond all shadow of a doubt? No, you know, that guy's an asshole. Is it true? Yes. Uh, can I know beyond all shadow of a doubt? Not really. I can't see the big picture here. How do I feel when I, when I think that thought? Feel pretty angry and shitty. Uh, who would I be without that thought? I'd just be going through life quite happily and able to take positive actions. So, just by interrogating the thought is a very uh, calming, useful 
way and it diffuses most of my anger and directs it into more positive, uh, potentially more positive channels. And that's been great for touring. Whenever I'm touring internationally or locally, there will inevitably not be a microphone at one of the schools and I'll be having to talk to 600 kids. And, uh, and that, this will have been established yeah. over and over again. I need a microphone. And they'll say, oh, no, we didn't think you'd need one. And I go, the minute I start provoking these kids, they are loud and mm-hmm. they say, oh, but the last author didn't need one. And they'll say, no, because he probably was boring them to death and they were all quiet. And so I can get really upset at that point and go, uh, but then I'll go, is it, is it true that I need a microphone? Um, uh, who, who do I, who, how do I feel with um, when I think that there's no microphone, how does that make me feel? I feel angry. Um, who would I be without it? I would be just standing here in front of 600 kids who need entertaining. And so then I make it my art to make the best of that situation um, despite the fact that there is no microphone. So the particular time I'm thinking about was in Brighton in the UK and I said, well, okay, I can't make everyone suffer and feel bad. I'm going to do my act, but I'll just go really slowly. I'll wait for them to laugh and I'll wait for them to settle down. I got only halfway through the talk right. by the end of the talk. <laughs> but no one knew. No, no, they no, all no. Had, they thought it was the greatest day ever. <laughs> so that's how our thoughts can defeat us yeah. and how we can question. So that's probably that's the great. biggest that is thing a, I've got from all That's of a great life. answer, mate. Thank you very much for that. Um, I have, as close as I have to a little self-help, you know, hang in there, cat on the wall slogan is this little lump of metal that I have had on my desk for 20 years and it is right. inscribed in it. It says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? So I'm going to ask you that question if you don't mind. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Um, I guess what immediately comes to mind was taking the leap from being an English teacher to um, taking the chance to become a writer, it seemed utterly hopeless. I probably was aware I could fail, mm. but I, I was like, I get one life and I've got to have a shot at this. And if I fail, I fail and I'll, I'll go back and happily teach for the rest of my life. But at least I'll know. So... That was probably the biggest, scariest thing I've ever done. And I couldn't see how it would turn out, um, even to the end of a week when I was living off savings. So it was about two years in the early 90s. I, if I thought about the future, I would get very panicky. I'd go, this is stupid, you know, the most cliched. I'm going to leave my job to become a writer. Yeah, right. Um but I would just go, no, I'm just going to do my day's writing. I'm going to take that walk, which diffused a lot of that anxiety every single day. So um, 
yeah, that's that would be my answer to that. I've, I've been able to fashion a life out of doing exactly what I want. Uh, final question. Thank you very much for doing this. This has been a great pleasure. I've very much enjoyed talking to you about all these things. So thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you too. Uh, uh, is there anything other than your books that you would like to plug, by the way? Like, I mean, obviously, you know, we'll give the books a proper plug, but is there anything else that you would like to plug while you're here? Uh Climate 200, can everyone please donate money to the uh, cause of getting more independence into Parliament so we can get some real action on climate change because that's what we really, really need. Uh, final question of the show. Uh, so I have a time machine. I can take you to any point in the future, any point in the past. Uh, it's one trip. It's a round trip. Uh, no restrictions really. So like you can go back and visit yourself, but you can ignore yourself completely and go to a different time in history or in the future. The only restriction that I put on it is this. I'd ask you to do something selfish because yes, you could go back and warn people about climate change or you know, kill baby Hitler or whatever, but let's just assume we're <laughs> going to send back more qualified people to do those things. This is, you get to do this for fun. Yeah, would you like to go forward in time or backward in time for a start? I get uh, very nostalgic for the early 80s mm -hmm. and probably the punk um, alternative rock scene in um, Melbourne. And I'd even go, I'd go straight to the Astor Theatre uh, early 1982, um, I think. I'd need to check that before mm -hmm. we Yeah, before we it. start, we'll do some Googling. Early 82, I would see the birthday party in full demonic splendour and force at the Astor Theatre. That was just a moment my, my whole world cracked open and I went, oh, my God, this is like, it's like the gates of hell have been opened and I'm peering into it. Uh, it was like nothing else. So, yeah, I can get that feeling a lot just by turning the stereo up, but I'd probably go back to that night and just experience it with the knowledge that this was going to be one of the greatest nuts of my life <laughs> well andy griffiths it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for joining the show thank you very much will